Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hey everyone, welcome to a new season of Searching the Sacred. We are excited that you are joining us on season five. As you likely know, we wrapped up season four by looking at the book of Ruth in the first two chapters. And so season five is going to continue our look into this dynamic book with chapters three and four. And so before we read the passage, we're going to have Steph give us a recap. And as we've done with the previous episodes, as we go through this, we are going to be making a discussion guide available if you would like to have a small group or a discussion group, a little coffee date with someone to discuss the podcast you're listening to. And all you have to do is become a patron of our podcast here by going to Patreon and search Searching the Sacred and donate $1 a month or more, and you will get a free download of the discussion guide. So Steph, why don't you recap chapters one and two for us? Yeah, you know, easier said than done when it took us so many episodes to go through chapters one and two, but... Only only like five hours. Yeah, no problem. So uh, Ruth won... Uh, encounters this family, the family of Elimelech. His wife is Naomi. His children are Mahlon and Chilion. Um, and so it's the story of this family that encounters a famine that it, that leaves for Moab, where the sons named Sickness and Death um, die. And where Naomi is then left with these two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And we talked a lot in that first season about the grief and the loss and the transition and what it is for Naomi to now be the voice in charge of her family as all the men have passed. And we talked about the hard choice that Orpah made to go back home and that Ruth made to go with Naomi. And so at the end of chapter one, we have this scenario where we have two widows, um, one of whom is a foreigner returning to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest And Ruth being a foreigner is so um, important because she's not just from anywhere. She's from Moab, which is a place that is, it is about the most other, other uh, that you can have to the Israelites because of the way uh, that they had conflict with the Moabites when they were ready to cross into the promised land and some of the things that they slash God said about that. And so when we get to Ruth too, um, they're in the land, but they don't have means. They don't have resources. They're two widows. They don't have land. And um, and Naomi's older. And so uh, Ruth says, okay, let me go glean um, from a field. And um, we talked some about how that gleaning practice is such an important way to care for those who are on the outside, those who are on the margins, those who are poor um, in the land. 
And Boaz is this landowner that is having people glean on his field and seems to be a good guy and um, notices Ruth, cares for her, and names in Ruth too all of the ways that Ruth has shown care to her mother-in-law. And um, and Ruth too ends note with Ruth going home and saying to Naomi, like, hey, I I found this field to glean in and his, his name is Boaz and he sent me home with all these things. And, um, and Naomi at the end of chapter two is the one who um, recognizes what a big deal it is um, that it was Boaz's field because he is a next of kin. And so when we enter into chapter three uh, in this season, we're now going to be thinking about this concept of kinsman redeemer that is in scripture and um, what's interesting in chapter two to notice is that even though um, Boaz names Ruth's kindness to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and he seems to know what family she's a part of, he also doesn't seem to recognize or act on the fact that he is kin. Um, and so that is where we're starting in chapter three is what are Naomi and Ruth going to do about the fact that they recognize that he is kin. And uh, as two women, once again, two widows, what action are they going to take on that fact? So I think that leads us into uh, Ruth three. If we say you want to read that for us, one through five. Yeah, so I'm going to read out of the altar translation again. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek for you a settled place for you, that it be well for you? And now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose young women you were winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight? And you must bathe and anoint yourself and put on your garments and go down to the threshing floor. Do not let yourself be known to the man till he has finished eating and drinking. And it will be, when he lies down, that you will know the place where he lies down, and you shall come and uncover his feet and lie down. And as for him, he shall tell you what you should do. And she said to her, whatever you say to me, I will do. Okay. Beginning of chapter three, we have two women making a plan. What's their plan? Well, it kind of feels like it's Naomi's plan and Ruth's just good with it. <laughs> Fair point. We have Naomi making a plan and Ruth riding along. I feel like that's like the, the, the read of it that's right there on the surface. But like Ruth has kind of seemingly been a very involved, knowledgeable player in every step of this. <clears throat> and so. I, I would not imagine she's going into this like, I have no idea what I'm, what I'm doing. I'm just going to do this. And I have no idea what the ramifications are. Um, maybe she has no idea. But I just, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't want to. Okay, so I'm going to put cards on the table. It feels a little bit like Naomi is putting Ruth out there to be, you know, taken in by a man, which sounds a little Game of Thronesy to me, and not in the best way, but in a really kind of gross way. And and so I want to believe that there's something, there's more agency involved. And I know we're kind of getting deep and kind of awkward right away, but it it feels 
I want Ruth to have agency. So therefore I want her to have knowledge of what she's about to do. So she's not just following directions. And then suddenly she's going to find herself in bed with somebody and then married to somebody as opposed to, no, this is a healthy match where I want to go and be connected to this person. And, and I know that the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, it's, it's not, it's not 2022 where, it, you know, we have mutuality of the genders and we have agency and all that. But <clears throat> anyway, I'm hoping for the best, even though you could really easily quickly convince me that, no, no, this is as Game of Thronesy as you could imagine. Well, I think what, what we have to allow the Hebrew scriptures to do is push us up against up some tensions that we feel uncomfortable with, like you're feeling right now. And to say, what is it to not run away from those tensions, but to notice them and to ask questions about why they're there? Um, why is this the path that they're taking? What does that say about the power structures? What does that say about um, decision-making and opportunities? And, and what is it to not shy away from those hard questions? It also kind of requires or at least invites us to think about how our, um, I don't know if we want to call it Western culture or American culture, we value like independence, we value that autonomy, and that is not true for, well, it's certainly not true this time biblically, but for many cultures, that's what's, what's valued is actually the community. Mm. Um, whether it's family or a broader sense of community, like the community is actually the thing that is the most important question that not I, but we, mm. and I think so sometimes it's hard for us to read the stories when we're looking at it from an I perspective and not a we perspective. <laughs> and also like, which makes it, there's a little bit of a dance there <laughs> then too of like how there is still oppression being used in it to do a community decisions. Um, so it's not to like wipe it clean to say, well, it was communal. That was that. Um, but also to hold that, like, this is, it wouldn't be an unusual request. It wouldn't be the unusual thing. And just the fact that he's, we're naming already that he's kinsman means that we're already involved in a conversation about community because, in, because you have a kinsman because you need that community. Like it's the community mm -hmm. trigger. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point, Lisa, that you brought up that idea of communal understanding of society and culture versus individualistic. And it, like you said, it's not to just like, oh, because it's community, it's no big deal no matter what happens because you're focused on the health of the community versus the individual. Like individuals still can still get hurt in a communal culture. Um, the same way someone in an individualistic society can still make communal decisions, even though it's not individually what they may think is best for them. So we we can we can think communally even if we grow up individualistic, vice versa, right? So Ruth may see, hey, whatever happens for the best better best best of the family, I'm gonna do it. And I would not like to be, you know, taken advantage of or whatnot, because that's not good either. But I, I appreciate that conversation around communal versus individualistic because that really does shape how we read when we come at it from a Western mindset versus a, a, a deeper understanding of the culture at the time. And I think the other thing as we, as we read to remember that communal mindset and to remember that most of the Bible is written from the perspective of the oppressed, not the oppressor. 
And that that changes a lot about how we read it, because for most of us, we are in a privileged position where there are strong differences between what we would do in a situation and what they would do because of what's available to us as people of privilege as compared to people who are oppressed. And when we're talking to about Naomi and Ruth in particular, to remember that here in chapter three, they are vulnerable people. They are, they are two widows, one of whom is a foreigner, trying to make the best decision for themselves and for one another and for the community from that position of being marginalized. And some attention that we haven't named because we sometimes don't even notice it is to notice here who is not talking. So when we are in this place of um, a transition point and a turning point in our lives where we say, oh, here's a path available to me. <laughs> Sorry, that was very Minnesotan. Oh, <laughs> here's this path available to me. <clears throat> As people of faith, what would we tend to do first? What would we think? Oh, there's a path in front of me. I wonder what I should do. As a person of faith, the first thing I will do is pray, talk to God. Pray, talk to God, listen for God, that whole conversation. Notice here in verses one through five, God is not talking. God is not stepping in to orchestrate something on behalf of these two people who are marginalized and vulnerable. They are having to create a plan for themselves. And even inside of scripture, we can see that happen multiple times, particularly in the cases of the women. How do we see this thread in scripture where the women are having to save themselves based on their own savvy, based on their own planning, based on even some of their own trickiness sometimes? Or their very in-depth understanding of what it should be and it isn't. Okay, say more about that, Lisa. Yeah, say more. Well. The assumption that that there has to be trickery or women are making a way <laughs> would mean like that it was, um, I don't know, like they're, they're crafting something that doesn't exist. But I think what we see is that women actually know the scripture well enough to know how to move other people into like behaving like the scripture might have asked. And so like there's a... This how are, oh, we're going to repeat that. How are the women moving other people towards what scripture was asking them to do and they weren't doing what a that's delicious good. that's question. really good and it, and it reminds me of something that was mentioned in the previous season uh where we brought up the idea of judah and tamar and how tamar was kind of left on her own in that family was not given another husband after two previous husbands had passed away judah was not following through on his obligation to give her um another one of his sons to be married to culturally, that was the right, right thing to do. And so she had to trick him into this, you know, experience, this, this relationship. And, and, and yet we can see her as the tricky one, the deceiver, deceptive, what, or her as the one that was more righteous and more um, in line with how things are supposed to go. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a really, I love the way you put that, Lisa. Well, especially in the way using that story, Judah is Judah ends up saying to Tamar, you are more righteous than I. You were more righteous than I. And in the book of Ruth, remember, we're, we're being invited from judges to say, what is, 
everyone is doing what is good or right in their own eyes. How are we seeing what is good and right in each of the eyes of the characters? So we have Ruth and Naomi figuring out what is good and right in our eyes. What is good and right is that someone's supposed to be a kinsman redeemer right now. And Boaz isn't seeing that that's his role. He met Ruth. He encountered that Naomi was her mother-in-law. He has some sense of who she is, and he's not taking action on that responsibility. How do they move that? How do they kick that ball down the field? How do they move things towards what's supposed to happen when they are the people with less power? Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating, especially when, I mean, there's so many implications here. Um, because, you know, that idea of, of, of being the redeemer, it's so often Boaz gets framed as kind of this hero of the story who comes in and, you know, kind of that knight in shining armor, like, I will save these women and I will be their redeemer and I will, you know, and, uh, and that's not what the story is painting in this moment. I mean, when, you know, that's not to take away all the good that Boaz has done and maybe will do. But in this moment, we're seeing the movement and the trajectory being shaped by these women who know, know what is expected and what should happen. And, and then are, are using whatever means necessary to, to move towards that, that end. Well, it's interesting. We like pulled in the story of Tamar because in some ways we're like, we're doing a little bit of a dance that's not super familiar. I mean, it is and it isn't, but like we're not really honor shame culture (laughs) like we understand it but we don't certainly don't practice it and so it's it's kind of like this it's this very interesting way of the women knowing that like communicating via honor shame is going to be the thing that kind of brings like 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 this awareness that feels like it should have been there like judah should have been aware cut and dried Mm -hmm. was not until it was like this very public forward facing how will you respond mm-hmm. and it makes me curious like maybe that's there's the way that Ruth is doing the same thing of saying like bringing it forward because maybe you just aren't maybe you just don't pay attention to it until all of a sudden you have to like face like in that culture honor or shame like what what thing do you suddenly have to face that makes you recognize like like how do we be, how do we, um, cause it can't be just about these guys, right? Like it can't just be about this time frame. There has to be something for us. And so what's, what thing in ourselves makes us recognize when we're out of line or out of step, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I, I wonder if some of that is even, even the fact that this is going to happen on the threshing floor. So let's talk about what the threshing floor is. So the threshing floor, um, we are not an agricultural society, most of us who are listening to this podcast. So we don't know what these things are that they're being talked about. So when you harvest barley or wheat, um, you have to do, you have to thresh and winnow it. And so thresh, to thresh it is you take all of that harvest and you bring it into like a barn and you beat it and you, because you have to get that kernel out from the wheat. So that's the threshing. The winnowing is that you then do something where you like throw that, those kernel, you throw what you have beaten up into the air and the chaff blows away and the seed falls to the ground. So that's like the two process thing that happens after harvest before you can eat from it is you have to thresh and winnow. So, um, 
First, we can notice why on earth would Boaz be sleeping on the floor, on the threshing floor? He's a rich landowner. Why would he be sleeping on the threshing floor? So if it is harvest and you are in that process of threshing and winnowing, why would the landowner be sleeping in the barn? That's question number one. I guess my only thought is like maybe to protect the crop in some way, because now is when it's, it's one thing to go out into the field and try to pick it all, but it's another thing to like, just gather it up really quick and, and run for it. In a way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's like a Scrooge McDuck moment. He just wants to swim in it. Like he just <laughs> wants to be in the green. Look at all this. <laughs> super comfortable. Yeah. Um, I, we could let it be a Scrooge McDuck moment. <laughs> I think that's possible. Look at this harvest. I think it's also when we think about the trajectory of things. Um, so this, uh, so threshing floor, just to use the Hebrew word is Gorin. And we've seen that come up in first Samuel 23. They told David, um, well, actually, sorry, I guess that's going to come up in the future, but they come and tell David in the future, the Philistines are robbing the threshing floors. That was one of the problems they were having is exactly as Jason said, this is one of the places that could get robbed because it's one thing to go on the field and harvest. But at this point where it's harvested, but not yet through the process is a point where things are very vulnerable for people coming through to steal your crops. So, I mean, maybe like a helpful visualization would be to say like, what's easier to steal um, a whole bunch of like wheat and barley and whatnot in a field or like a haystack, right? Like, I can pick up a haystack and run. I can't exactly go through the field and very quickly and efficiently get as much as what I could get if I were to like take what you've already started to put together. I, w- I would love to see somebody try to like get as much as what's in a hay bale. You know, if this was a more popular <laughs> podcast, we would probably have an Instagram like, you know, video of somebody running through a field with a haystack. That would be nice marketing. Well, I was thinking you were going to take it to more of a modern world of like stealing bread versus stealing flour, right? Like, there you go. Or, or that. Or that, that. Like we can we can think about this for our own sake. Like like the further something is down the line, the more vulnerable you are to that being taken from you, and it needs to be guarded differently. So. So this is down the line in some way where Boaz is probably guarding it to say, like, this is now my job to protect this crop that's been harvested before it gets into its, you know, final form. Right. Like no one steals from the Ford factory, but people steal cars. (laughs) Great. There you go. We'll just keep, we'll keep reaching for those modern overlaps. And, and so this, like, I, I, I was saying that because I think I, what I want to hold is the question that Lisa brought us to, of like, what about, sh- like, that shame culture or whatever? Like, what is Boaz going to be facing at this moment in time that maybe is causing him to face something? So he is in this position where he is a rich landowner, but his, but his riches are vulnerable. They are in the barn. They are laying there. And he's probably there as well to guard it to make sure that it's not taken would be, it's not the only possibility, but it's a strong possibility for why he's there, what this moment in time is for him. I mean, also though, if he's there to guard it, he's not doing a good job. So I also like, there's a part of me too. That's like, maybe it's more, this is about convenience of like, not wanting to go out. Like if everybody's there, everybody's working and you're in 
the field, maybe you just stay in the field because you're, or you're so like you're working on the threshing floor. So you would just stay at the threshing floor because I, this is a time where there's a lot of work for everybody. So maybe it's a little bit more like maybe the other workers are there too. Like we're in the middle of the threshing and winnowing process. So we're all just having a big sleepover <laughs> as a part of that threshing and winnowing process. Like why go home? We're just going to get up and work all day tomorrow. Also a possibility is very different part of the process than plant. Like there's a lot of wait time in between the planting and the reaping. This is not, this is a time where it's work. Every day is work until you get this whole crop sorted. Well, and there's a few things happening like I, that maybe I'm speculating here, of course, is that, like you said, if you're waiting for the crop to grow, you're separated from the workers. You also have like a lot more downtime. If you are harvesting, you are spread out. You're all over the field. You're doing that. If you're threshing and winnowing, there's a concentrated group of people all in a very close quarters situation. So if something dramatic were to happen in that setting, it would be extremely hard to miss. As opposed to if you came to the, you know, if she came to Boaz during the growing season or even during the harvest where there's people spread out, it would be a lot easier to ignore or to say, oh, come back later or, you know, sorry, no, not, you know, I'm not helping you. But in front of everybody, that's where the shame potentially gets triggered is because it's not just what he feels, but it's, it's the reaction that might happen from everyone else in that barn or that's a part of that community witnessing what's about to happen. And so the threshing floor becomes that concentrated space where you, and then the second thing that is happening is that if you're in the process of doing all this, your mind might be distracted at some level. And then suddenly when you interject something new, uh, it's jarring and you have to face it because you don't have the space to like, to try to just, you know, slough it off in a way. Like you gotta, you, you don't have anything, you don't have any capacity left because you're so focused elsewhere. Like, Oh crap, I got to deal with this right now because I got to get back to this thing. Okay. Maybe, maybe the reason that Boaz missed this in Ruth too was because he's at a time of the harvest where he's distracted. There's a lot going on. He's got to make sure it gets harvested. It gets threshed and it gets winnowed so that we actually have some grain to work with. So this is like a very busy season for him. And maybe he needs to be faced with something in this very upfront direct way in order to see it, in order to be, um, how did you say it? Like surprised out or, or like sh shocked? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like up. you didn't see it coming. And so you just have to like, it's right there in your face. And, and sometimes when you're, when you're kind of over busy or taxed and you have something new come your way, you just have to respond to it. You can't, you can't imagine a third or fourth response. It's either yes or no. You know, like my kids know that when I'm really, really busy, that's a great time to ask dad for something because you're going to get a quick response because I really don't want to debate this with you and I don't have time to ignore you. And mm -hmm. so you're going to come ask me while I'm busy because I'm probably just going to say yes because um, <laughs> I want you to move on. And I'm not saying that that's what's going on here with this, but I just think there's something about this, this space where there's a lot of people, there's a lot happening. You're going to get a response in that environment. Well, you're, I mean, it's one of those, there's a lot of ways to have this conversation. If I think about like today's options of like, well, why you got to do it right there, right now in the middle of the night? Like, why can't we just go, hi, you're our kinsman redeemer. <laughs> like, 
what is like, there's probably some cultural things that I'm missing that would be very obvious if in a different time and space. But like, for me, I'm like, because of how it just feels like it's a very, like Naomi is very insistent on like, what is going to happen next? Mm -hmm. It's not like we had to dive in there for a minute. Like, (laughs) maybe get this instruction to go do this feet thing. And we kind of haven't touched on the foot fetish part of all this. So, well, before we do that, I want to bring one more piece of the threshing floor in for what might be okay. facing and, this and moment. Okay. That was meant to be humorous. Okay. <laughs> for all the people listening, when I said foot fetish, that was meant to get a laugh and it didn't. Um, I didn't want anyone to think that I'm some kind of, you know, whatever. Jason, but, it's uh, okay. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. We all got our thing. <laughs> well, I think it's. Uh, that helps us. We do need to face some awkward things here and we'll get to that, but I don't, we just have to get to one more piece of the threshing floor first, in my opinion, because I think that it's helpful. So we, this concept of having a kinsman redeemer is in Leviticus 25 verse 25. And it's this idea of if a brother becomes poor and has to sell a part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So the idea of the redeemer is actually primarily about Elimelech and the fact that Elimelech has land that he lost as a part of leaving that now rightly belongs to his line, which would be Naomi and Ruth. And it's about getting land back for their family. But Boaz is the one with the authority to get that land back for their family. So this isn't about Ruth per se. It's about the land and protecting Ruth is a part of protecting that land. It's all kind of tied up together. But that instruction for that redeemer or that kinsman role is in Leviticus 25, which is the chapter that talks about the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. And that conceptually, this has a lot to do with the rhythms of sacred time in the land, which we've already talked about, I think, as a part of the first fruits. The barley harvest is a part of the first fruits festival. Gleaning is a part of the instruction for first fruits. This instruction for for redeeming kinsmen is very tied up into Sabbath year and year of Jubilee. Because in the Sabbath year, anybody who has been... um, has due to poverty become an indentured servant to your household, you release them after seven years, even if they haven't paid their debt back because they don't, God doesn't want slavery to become a part of the promised land, that there is a way to have this indentured servant that is pays back a debt, but you do not enslave people for the long haul. So every seven years, any indentured servant gets freed. Um, and then every, and then every year of Jubilee, every seven set of 49 years, seven sets of seven, um, not only do, do people get freed, everybody gets their land back. There's this giant reset that prevents this trajectory of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. That instruction is in Leviticus 25. It's also in Deuteronomy 15. And in Deuteronomy 15, it specifies that when you free an indentured servant who has been uh, who has been with you for six years, you need to not send them away empty, but give them things out of your flock, um, out of your wine press, and from your threshing floor. 
So this is Deuteronomy 15, verse 14, if anyone wants to look that up. So a part of this energy of having a kinsman, of getting people's land back, of freeing people from slavery, includes this instruction of give them things from your threshing floor. Give them the grain that is sitting there and easy to steal and give it away. Give it to the people who need it. So potentially another way that Boaz has to face something here with the threshing floor is the fact that the threshing floor is directly connected to these ideas of Sabbath and Jubilee, where people get land and freedom and resources to get back on their feet again. I think that is really important. And I'm glad that you grounded us there as opposed to jumping to this other question that we have about what's going on you know, uncovering the feet and all that, because it reminds us that this really is meant to be a story of justice, liberation, of hope, of, of, of looking generationally down the line and saying like, we, if we don't do some of this stuff, we aren't going to survive. And I think that even goes back to well, why, if they're gleaning in Boaz's field and, and they're getting enough to eat, why make this next step? towards you know putting herself out there like this and the the answer that i i was kind of coming to as i was kind of ruminating on it is because it's one thing to survive it's another thing to actually see yourself having a future um and it's really easy from a place of privilege to go well survival's fine you know yeah because i don't have to think about it right but that's like that from an oppressed point of view or a marginalized point of view, survival might be the first step, but you don't want to just survive. You also want to get back to a place where you can actually start to dream again and see your future. And so um, here's, here's an idea that connects back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's more than just survival, but it's how do we see this become what it's meant to be? Right. Cause God instructs more than just leaning. There's, there's all these fail safes right. or like safety. There's all these safety nets for people, but it's not just about, I love how you said it, it's not just about surviving. It's about thriving. So gleaning helps people survive, but something like releasing them every seven years from anything they're indentured to with resources to start again, generationally to have this 50 year celebration of Jubilee says generationally, every group gets an equal playing field again means that like there's always this shot at hope of thriving of your family line having good that it's contributing and not gleaning traps us a little differently it sort of it reminds me like i'm thinking about concepts of when helping hurts where yeah. like yes it's good to have food shelves for people who are who don't have enough to eat but that is not the long-term solution to people who don't have enough to eat. Ultimately, that's not helping them be empowered humans. That's it's something, but it's not it's not really for their long-term good. Right. I mean, and you can look at this both on individual levels and like choices that we make as people, what we participate in, but also I think we could look at this from like societal or cultural levels or even governmental levels. Um, you know we're talking about a people group that they didn't have a centralized government. They were kind of all families doing their thing or tribes trying to figure out how they navigate their experiences. Um, we live in a time where there are countries and there are governments and they all make choices. And I, I, when I think about this idea of 
how do we move beyond the gleaning and into a more sustainable practice of empowering people to, to flourish? I look at something like what large countries like America do when there is a famine or there is poverty. They often go in and they provide that support in, in the immediate aftermath of, say, an earthquake or a, a, another natural disaster. But then they also create packs or uh, contracts with the government to continue the supply of that thing. So for instance, the rice production in Haiti after the massive earthquake in 2010, we came in with a lot of aid, but then we also kind of set up this structure. Where we're going to continue giving that aid. Why? Because our farmers are going to sell more you know, crops that way. And yet what we did is we ended up stopping the farmers in Haiti from actually having a, a sustainable living. And so how do we as people that participate in government, participate in structures, how do we take notice of when we are helping actually is hurting or it's only benefiting us and not actually setting someone else free um, who needs it? Lisa, you've looked deep in thought. Um, well, I think it's all like, they're very big questions and I'm trying to figure out like, um, I feel like this is that space of maybe figuring out um, what it's like to receive help and if how often we sit in that posture. Um, it's really easy for me to want to help. Um, like that just says, I like to be a helper, I like to fix everybody else's problems. Uh, let me help you. <laughs> help me help you. <laughs> but, um, But there's also times in like in places where it feels vulnerable that help feels risky to ask for help. Um, it makes me think about um, we're really used to having systems like big other systems to help, and so it doesn't have to be so intimate, like. Mm -hmm. You can go ask a government for help or you can go to a food shelf or like whatever. But this makes me think about like, oh, yeah, things would be so different if you were actually within a small community where you all knew each other. And so the request for help feels different, looks different. Like in some ways it's more vulnerable, but also it has like a, you you know what you're asking for. Like there's a clarity of um, how it's going to how it's going to look. Right. This is, this is, I'm like thinking about the potential, um, the vulnerability for everybody in this situation, because Ruth and Naomi have to call out Boaz to say, you have to, you personally as an individual have to step into this systematic responsibility that you've been given by God to do. And so that might be like us going to a neighbor and saying like, you're not doing what God asked you to do you need to help me the way that God has asked you to help me is a very different thing than just anonymously depending on a system to help you. This The system is going to help you by this individual helping you and having to be called out that they're not doing it. And treading there is, is tough. That's tough. That's really risky and vulnerable. I'm just thinking about like, what would that, be? I can't think of a modern alternative for me of like, who would I be saying it'd be, it'd be maybe like me 
I, here's here's a comparison. We talk about deconstruction on here, and a lot of people talk generally about their disappointment or frustration with where the church has gone. That's one thing. It's another thing to say, if I've been a part of a church community, to schedule a meeting with that pastor and say, here are the things that you haven't done that I expect as a pastor you would have done for me, and I'm asking you to do them for me right now. I want to switch this path of of religious harm by calling you to account of your role on that and asking you to intervene in my life in a positive way. That's totally different than just systematically talking about it. That's a, that, that I, there's ways that analogy fails, but that just comes to mind as something we talk about on this podcast, like how vulnerable that would feel, how many ways that could go badly. Um, whether I even want to receive help from that person <laughs> that I'm asking for it from. Mm. Yeah, that's that's vulnerable. That's that's that's. Whew. Yeah, that's hard space. It's also helpful if you have another option which I feel like in a lot of times in our church settings, we can just go to a different church or bail out or we've got some options in deconstruction and they're, we're getting to have more and more like resources around it without being like shame spiraled. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, this podcast is one of them, right? Yeah. I mean, if somebody doesn't find their spiritual needs being met in a church setting, you know, from a theological or, you know, thinking, you know, questioning, wrestling type of way, they could easily just listen to this podcast and hang out with a small group of people. And, you know, for a dollar a month, they could get a good discussion guide and have a really wonderful conversation around the <laughs> scriptures. And, and that's, yeah. that's fine. You know, it's, uh, so, yeah, we can I mean, go someplace right. else in a small community like Bethlehem in the ancient world. They can't go anywhere else. Their right. only option is to get people to do what God has asked them to do. They can't just go someplace else. Listen, and in that case, you do need something big. Like if you if you only got one shot, like if you've got one, like one thing has to happen. You're going big or going home. Like there, you don't have another, like who's going to half-ass your only opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like you don't, like, this is it. Naomi clearly knows it. I don't know if Ruth knows it as much. Like, like this is Naomi's stomping grounds. This is where she grew up. This is her people. This is her, like, it's her kin more so just because she understands what's happening. If they were in Moab, this would not be the conversation. And so even, I feel like that, that there's some, I feel like Naomi probably has a crystal clear like view to the future of like, this is, this is it. And we're not messing around. And maybe that's seen in verse one, actually, with how she says this, she says, shall I not seek my train? I think Alter said rest for you. Settled place, a settled place. That's better. My translation says rest. So it's not just rest, like generally, like I want you to be relaxed. It has that word place to it. It's a place of rest. Shall I not find you a safe place to rest. So the word there is manuach, 
So Nuach is, is, is at the root of the word Noah. And it's, and it's this word, the, the Manuach is, um, when Noah's in the ark and he sends out the dove and the dove comes back because it cannot find a resting place. Um, that's the word. It can't find a Manuach. So it comes back to the boat until it has a resting place that is a safe resting place. And so she's saying to her daughter-in-law, I need to find you a safe resting place. That's not just a lighthearted, like, I need to find you some resources. She's like, I know that this is what you need. This will be your safe resting place for you is, is Boaz. And I'm committed to this path. She uses the same language in chapter one, verse nine. Mm. So this is also true to who Naomi is. Like what she wants, she still wants the same thing. She wants this safe resting place for these women. Mm-hmm. And Boaz is it. So how are we going to get that? Well, and, and in chapter one, verse nine, it's not in Israel. It's actually in your family's house in Moab. So she wants that for them, whether it's in Moab, which is what Orpah chooses, or she wants that here in Bethlehem, which is what Ruth chooses. Right, because in 1 verse 9, it was grant that you find Menuach in the house of your husband. Um, And she asked them to go to their mother's house. Ruth chose Naomi as her mother. So now Naomi is the one in charge of finding Ruth a husband that can be that safe resting place. And so here we are in Ruth 3 at the moment in time where this is, this is the path for that to happen. And, and Naomi sees it and is, but Ruth has to participate in it in order for it to happen. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that. Process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Sacred.